Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. And it's good to have students back. It's good to get to worship with you all and get to hear stories about the way God's working in you guys' lives and look forward to seeing how that works itself out throughout the rest of the summer and as we head into next school year. And so good stuff happening all around us. Also want to encourage you just uh, to continue to pray for us as we're looking for a church building and a place to call home permanently. We're continuing to have conversations, continuing to pursue properties. And so want to just ask you to, to pray for us and just pray that God would uh, continue to, to guide and direct your steps, that he close doors and open doors and uh, provide us for the right place to call home as a church family. We know that church is ultimately a people and not a building. And so we're grateful to get to celebrate and know that nothing um, in terms of a building can keep us from doing everything God wants us to do and continue to live out what it means to follow Jesus. So turn with me to Matthew chapter seven, uh, where Jesus says, do not judge. One of the most quoted and misunderstood sayings of Jesus. This is one of the most used and abused uh, verses in all of the Bible in our, in our current day, uh, used by people everywhere to fight against judgmental people. Uh, but what did Jesus really mean by these words and how do we live them out? So uh, we're going to read at the beginning of Matthew chapter 7 as we continue this study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Verse 1 says, judge not that you not be judged. For with judgment you pronounce, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your, in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. This is the word of the Lord. And Pigs, dogs, hypocrites, Jesus isn't being very PC, right? I mean, there's not a lot of political correctness starting off here, and, but Jesus has a very realistic view of the world, doesn't he? When, when you think about the way in which our world works and the way in which we love to throw condemnation and rejection at, at other people, Jesus bears a very realistic perspective. He assumes that we're going to have issues that need to be dealt with. He assumes that we're all going to have problems. He also assumes that Christians and non-Christians alike are going to be tempted to try to help other people in ways that aren't very helpful. And so Jesus speaks into that, and he assumes that much of the time our help is going to be poorly given. Um, now, of course, this kind of judgmentalism that Jesus is talking about does nothing but increase the tensions in our relationships, right? I mean, anybody want to live in a judgmental home? Any of you want to work with coworkers that are constantly critical and harping on you? Any of you want to live in a world uh, where people are, are polarized and like to throw, you know a lot about that, don't you? Uh, living in a polarized world where people are constantly criticizing and attacking those around them. Um, we've created a lot of times a world that we don't really want to live in. 
And I think that's part of the problem. So Jesus here plays the part of uh, the philosopher and he starts off uh, really just talking about a general statement about how the world works. And he says, judge not lest you be judged. And the way in which you judge others is gonna is going to be the way in which you experience judgment. What he's really saying is you get out what you put in, you reap what you sow. This is the general kind of principle that the world works on, right? That, that whatever you dish out, it's gonna come back at you. That whenever we act harshly towards another, it tends to boomerang and come back at us in a similar way. And so as you think about this law of the universe, what, um, what he's saying is that, that we actually have a part in creating the world in which we live. And so if we constantly put in judgment, we're gonna create a world that constantly gives back judgment. This affects the way we relate, uh, that we interact with our relationships, um, really in every every shape and form. It also impacts the way in which we experience our relationship with the Lord. And so verse two, when you look at this text, verse two really talks about kind of the negative of this attitude. It says, don't be harsh unless you want to experience, experience harshness in return. And so that's the negative. Don't do this or you'll get this back. If you skip down just a little bit later in verse 12, we're gonna look at in a couple weeks, you get down to the golden rule and Jesus actually gives the positive of this. So if he's given the negative in verse two, in verse 12, he gives the positive in the golden rule. And he says, that whatever you wish others to do for you, do that to them, for this is the law and the prophets. See how that works? Then if you put in negative, you're gonna get back negative. If you put in positive, you get back positive. Jesus says, this is, this is the way in which um, the world, w- uh, the way of being wise in the world. And somehow we have to choose how we're gonna interact with those around us. And the way in which we relate to those around us is the way we're gonna experience people around us. And the way in which we treat others is the way we're gonna be treated, even, uh, even in our experience from God. So here's what we're gonna see today, that in order to flourish in God's world, we must resist living in the default modes of criticism and condemnation, and instead exchange those for encouragement and for acceptance. And so in this, um, we've created a world that that none of us wanna live in, uh, but what what I think we need to see here is Jesus talking to his, his followers. And so what he's talking, he's talking to Christians here and he's saying that Christians are called to be different. And we've seen this throughout the Sermon on the Mount that we're called to be unique in the world, that God has called us out of it as a community that's supposed to display his goodness to those around us. And the problem is that we Christians oftentimes are very skilled in this judgment game. And when Christians don't act like Christ, it creates problems for us. And then we wonder what's going on. I love the way Francis Schaeffer says, he says, there's nothing more ugly than Christian orthodoxy without understanding or compassion. See, truth without love is cold and hard. Truth without love cuts, but it doesn't heal. And so we're called to be people ultimately of grace. But it's important to say that that this idea that Christians sometimes are judgmental didn't come from Jesus. It didn't come from Christ. Christ taught us a weather way, and he said, actually, do not judge. And so uh, Jesus uh, continually fought against the spirit spirit of Phariseeism and legalistic nastiness. Uh, He said, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And so there's this foundational aspect of what Jesus came to do that ought to shape his people and his followers. Now, it would be easy for us as Christians to say, well, this is just a problem with everyone out there, all those judgmental people out in the world. But the reality is Jesus says, he, he turns the mirror back on us. and says, you guys seem to have a particular set of skills in learning how to judgment, judge other people. 
And so this is something I think we need to wrestle with and something that uh, before we go any further, I think, I think we, need to, we need to pause and we need to ask what Jesus is really saying when he says, do not judge, because there's lots of misconceptions here. So let me start with this. What is Jesus not saying in this passage? When, uh, maybe go the, because the opposite is all equally pro- problematic. If truth without love is cold and hard, love without truth is flimsy and weak. And so you need to have love and truth together and you have to hold those, hold those in tension or, or hold those in unity. Now think with me about the way verse one is typically used in our world by, by Christians and non-Christians alike, right? It's usually like, hey man, don't judge me. Like Jesus said, don't judge. Don't, don't, don't cast judgment on me. That's the way this verse is typically used. And if you go out in the normal conversations of our life, if you go out and listen to those around us, that's the kind of thing that gets thrown out all the time, that anytime someone feels like they're being pinched down a little bit, their freedom's being impinged on a little, they go, man, don't judge me. Jesus said you shouldn't judge. And so that's this kind of mantra that people throw out to sum up all of what Jesus said. Now, there is some truth to that, right? I mean, Jesus right here in verse one says, don't judge. And so this is true in some ways. And Jesus was constantly fighting against the spirit of condemnation and judgmentalism and harsh legalism. And so Jesus is constantly pressing in on that issue. And so that is very much true, but that wasn't all that Jesus said. So when Jesus commands us, do not judge, he's saying, do not ever notice sin and just turn a blind eye to evil in the world. Ultimately, that's not what Jesus is saying, right? Um, here we see a common problem uh, that, that one person called to, uh, totalization. In totalization, what we're doing is we take one verse, and this is a, an interpretive issue, a problem in our world, that we, we love sound by theology. We love theology that can be summed up with one quick statement, and so we take one verse and we make it the total sum of what Jesus said. And so we take a verse like this and say, do not judge, and we make it into this blanket statement that overrides everything else. Now we do this all the time and as we look at the Bible. Think about uh, the woman who was caught in adultery and the story uh, that, that uh, that, that, of Jesus engaging her. And he says, he who's without sin, let him cast the first stone. Now, people love to quote that, right? It is anytime someone starts to criticize someone's actions or say, well, that's, I think, an immoral behavior or something that's wrong, what is it we say? We go, hey, he who's without sin, let him cast the first stone. You shouldn't judge anyone. Jesus said, don't judge. And we make these kind of these totalized statements about the way in which Jesus said something. But the fact is that, our, that reality is a little more, is more complex than our soundbite theology, right? So when we base when we take one verse and try to make it the total truth of something, we tend to overstate the case and we tend to miss the wisdom that comes from seeing the whole picture. So back to verse one, when Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged, the real question is, what does he mean? Now, Jesus is clearly not saying that we're never to judge someone's actions. In fact, if you go to just to verse six, Jesus calls, says, uh, don't throw your pearls before pigs and don't, uh, don't throw holy things before dogs. That's a judgment, right? Uh, and so Jesus is making a pretty harsh statement there about another group of people. When you go down to uh, verse 15, Jesus warns us against listening to false prophets and says, beware, you need to identify that there's wolves that are, that are, devouring, uh, that are devouring the sheep and you need to separate them and remove resist, you resist the false teachers. You go a few chapters over to Matthew 18 and uh, Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, you are to go and show him his, his fault so that you can be restored and reconciled. Well, you can't go and show a brother his fault without judging that he's sinned against you. 
So if a brother sinned against you, go and show him. Jesus is not saying that we can't ever discern right from wrong. He's saying, not saying that we can't ever engage in conversations about good behavior and bad behavior. That's clearly not what Jesus means here in, when he, in verse one when he says, do not judge. Now this word for judge means to part, to divide, to separate, to identify, to discern something. And so it's, it's something that we naturally do all the time that when you look at people's behavior, you go, man, I don't think they're doing that the right way. Uh, parents, you do this uh, way more than you want to with your kids, right? You just look down and you go, don't talk to your brother that way. Don't talk to your sister that way. Don't do this. And your kids, you look at your parents and you want to say the same thing, but you know better, right? Because you look at mom and dad and you go, I don't think you said that the right way. Um, and they probably didn't, but it's not your job to tell them. So you're, if you're a smart kid, you just kind of stay quiet or maybe gently suggest something. Um, but... Uh, this kind of thing's involved in any kind of discernment and we need to be discerning people. In fact, Philippians 1, Paul prays this for his people and he says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So Jesus is not fighting against discernment and judgment about what is right and wrong. Jesus is fighting against uh, judging others in a way that you, is more harshly than you judge yourself. He's saying, don't live in a judgmental, harsh, hypercritical, constantly nitpicking spirit. See, some people are, are fault finders. They love to walk through the day, and it's like they've got a radar, and they're like, do, 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 and I'm looking for someone to fail. So I can point out, go, oh, you blew it. And so they're walking throughout life, and it's like they've got a scanner inside their head that's just scanning over the horizon, looking for someone to make a mistake, and going, oh, fault, fault, fault failure, 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 and they're pointing out all these things. And in fact, it's become so natural, they don't even realize they're doing it. They just think that this is what normal life is like, that I'm supposed to go through life identifying everyone else's errors so that I can make sure that my way is understood. And they actively seek and feel obligated to point those things out. Now, Jesus is not calling us to ignore sin and brokenness. He's asking us to be people of kindness, humility, and grace, Right? So there's a difference between judging right and wrong and being judgmental or being harshly judgment, judging of someone else or judging someone else unfairly because you give yourself a pass and give everyone else criticism. And that's the problem. So then you get to verses three to five and Jesus has this great image, this memorable image that he gives us. And uh, now remember, uh, Jesus, Jesus' father did what as a, as a living, to make a living? He's a carpenter. Joseph was a carpenter, so Jesus being a carpenter's son actually takes an analogy from the carpenter's workshop, uh, from probably the thing that he'd grown up in, that he'd seen. He certainly knew the dangers of woodworking. Uh, the annoyance of getting sawdust in your eye would have been a pretty normal practice for a carpenter. If any of you are woodworkers, you know this is a reality uh, for the way, it, the way things work. That's why uh, years later, or 2,000 years later, in a very uh, legally lawsuit-driven culture, every saw or every piece of equipment you buy has got a warning label on it that says, you know, you should wear protective eye care, right? And so it tells us that we need to put protective eye care on whenever we're using any kind of woodworking equipment so that these kinds of things don't happen. And so when you think about sawdust, sawdust in the eye was really an everyday kind of a problem in the workshop, right? Um, so that was, that was something that would happen all the time. But a plank in the eye That'd be a pretty unique occurrence, right? I mean, that, that hopefully, hopefully is not a normal workshop deal. If it is, you may need to find a different trade. 
Like that may not be the line of work for you if you're constantly getting a plank stuck in your eyeball. Now think about what happens when a bit of sawdust goes in your eye. It doesn't really stop too much, right? You wipe it out, you move on, you go back to work. Now what happens if someone gets a plank in the eye? I mean, the whole work site's gonna shut down, right? Emergency medical, has to, uh, emergency medical care has to be called in. There's gotta be uh, some kind of stoppage to the deal. Everything has to be adjusted. You gotta make, it, make things work. Then you gotta follow it up. There's gotta be a report file. There's gotta be an insurance claim made. Uh, the little board that says how many days since the last work site accident gets put back to zero. Like everything changes when you have a plank in the eye problem. And that's why Jesus memorable is so, uh, is so memorable. It's a really big deal. So sawdust guy has got kind of an everyday nuisance sort of problem. Plank eye guy has got a, a stick jutting out of his eyeball. Now, I'm tempted to gross you out because I actually had a really good friend who was a surgeon in Dallas, and he was an ocular specialist, and he, he worked on call for five of the main hospitals in Dallas, and anytime someone had a serious eye injury, he's the one that got called in to operate and make that work, and if you want to really gross yourself out later, grab me after service, I will tell you stories that this guy told me about crazy ways that people got stuff stuck in their eyes, and it will completely freak you out, um, completely a gross thing, but but that's why Jesus, uh, Jesus' image here is so memorable. So with that in mind, plank eye guy sticking out, um, this is the image you're supposed to have is somebody's got a little piece of dust in his eye and you can kind of do one of these and take care of that, right? But you've got another guy that's got a plank sticking out of his eye and he's running around like a zombie trying to grab this guy and dig the little piece of uh, the, the little piece of sawdust out of his eye and he can't even see because he's got this gross thing happening. So with that in mind, listen to these verses. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's sticking out of your own eye? Why do you say, let me dig the speck out of your eye when there's a giant stick poking out of your eyeball? That's what Jesus meant. It's meant to be kind of darkly humorous. I think Jesus had a sense of humor and I think he's poking on something going, when you, when you act judgmentally to others, you look this idiotic. Like this is how crazy you look because you got your own stuff and whatever you throw out at someone else is gonna come back at you. And so you're gonna have your own issues to deal with. So let's do some compare contrast. Take you back to school for a minute. Um, what, what was similar about these two people? Well, they both had something in their eye, right? Well, what was different? Well, one had a, kind of a minor thing, a speck of sawdust in his eye. The other was a major danger. Now in Jesus telling of the story, who had the speck of sawdust in their eye? your brother, who had the plank in their eye? You did. So Jesus, the way he's telling the story is meant to put you in the place of saying, oh, I'm like the plank eye guy that's judging someone else when I've got all this evil in my own life that I'm overlooking. So he puts you in the place of the person with a bigger fault. Now, and he's really saying, why are you so worried about the little peccadillos and sins of someone else when you've got these giant, tremendous flaws of your own? You notice the word he uses for that. He says hypocrite. See, hypocrisy is when we do one thing or, or, or treat one person in one way in a different way than we treat ourselves. Saying so you're being a lot harsher on someone else than you are on your, on your, own, on your own set. And really this is an issue of self-awareness. Have you ever noticed how easy it is for you to identify the sins of others and be annoyed by the sins of other people than you are by your own? See, when you swim in the waters of your own brokenness, you get really comfortable and used to those things. Uh, I remember a guy telling me that um, he went over to someone else's house and their dog just really smelled. And he got nervous because he said, 
does our dog smell that bad and we've just been around it so long we don't even notice it anymore? Like we don't, we can't even smell our own, our own house because we've lived in it so long this has become normal. And, but I go to someone else's house, I'm like, oh dude, their animals really stink. Uh, and so you, you create this kind of difference that takes place there in the way in which you treat other people. And it's a, it's a self-awareness problem. Uh, Jesus said in, in Luke 18, Jesus highlights this problem. He says there were people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so he told a parable to correct them. Because he wanted to understand when we act in self-righteousness, when we act like we have it all together but everyone else is wrong, we're, we're somehow not seeing ourselves in an accurate light. Now, the core issue of this problem is blindness to your own sin and putting a magnifying glass on someone else's sin. You know, uh, one guy said, if, you're, if your Bible reading causes you to scrutinize others more than you scrutinize yourself, you're reading the Bible wrong. See, when you, when you look in, out at everyone else and you've got, a, mic, you've got a, a magnifying glass to highlight all the places where they've gotten off, but you don't ever put a mirror up to your own face and see the own issues in your own life, you're not, you're not doing the Bible, you're not doing Christianity right. Discerning someone else's needs when you can't discern your own is a problem. And it's ultimately gonna lead to condemnation. So that really is when Jesus talks about the plank in your eye, it's judgmentalism or, <clears throat> or condemnation that really is the problem. And Jesus knows that the fact is that, I mean, you think about the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, when you think about going back to the Beatitudes and things we learn there, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are those who are merciful. That if you've walked through the Beatitudes and you've learned to live uh, the, the kingdom way of life, that there's no way you get to a place of being this kind of judgmentally uh, condemning of others. That if you've, if you've understood your own sin and understood the way in which you need to lay down yourself and take on a new life through the kingdom of Christ, then you're not going to condemn and look down upon others because you're gonna realize how badly you need that same thing. And so when Jesus is calling out condemnation here, what he's saying is you're not living the kingdom way that I'm teaching you. You're not living in a way that's going to bring, lead to human flourishing. Remember the overarching theme of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing? He's saying, like a philosopher, if you want to know how to live well in the world, if you want to know how to thrive, if you want to know how to flourish, if you want to know how to create families and churches and schools and teams and workplaces and cities and countries and a society that flourishes in the world, you need to live in the kingdom way of living. And he's saying that judgmentalism and condemnation is never gonna lead us where we wanna go. It's always going to fall short. And so I want us to think a little bit about where condemnation comes from. I think condemnation's really rooted in, in three areas. I think condemnation is rooted in comparison, it's rooted in control, and it's rooted in counterattack. And so let me talk about each of those for just a minute. Comparison, and for some reason, uh, the way in which we're created, we, we operate in the world, we're just very uncomfortable with differences. Uh, we're uncomfortable with people that don't, uh, that don't look like us. We're, uh, we, we prefer sameness to, to difference many times. And so we're uncomfortable with, with people who have different viewpoints. We're uncomfortable with people who appreciate different music. We're uncomfortable with people who have uh, different preferences and, and opinions than we do. 
And so this really is a form of legalism. It's saying that I, it's people that are creating laws that say, uh, laws where there shouldn't be laws. Uh, where we, we create the system that says, you have to line up with me in order for me to show approval or affirmation of, and encouragement of you. But oftentimes those are not biblical difference. We're not, we're not dividing lines of good and evil or morality or lines of true belief and false belief that, G, that, that God has given us. Uh, we're simply showing preferences. And in that, when we make our preferences into demands on someone else, um, and when we compare ourselves to others, it ultimately leads to kind of a judgmental attitude. It just says, well, your music isn't as good as mine. Your viewpoints aren't as good as mine. Your opinions aren't as good as mine. Um, and when we do that in ways where God has not spoken, um, we get ourselves out of bounds and we create laws where there shouldn't be laws and expectations and judgments where there shouldn't be expectations and judgments. So look at the second one, control. You think about control. When we operate in self-righteousness, we seek to control others. People who want things done a certain way, oftentimes you see people with kind of a religious rigidity to them, that they've got a certain way of doing things and a certain way of living out the faith that they say, this is the way in which you need to live. Now, other people, it's not a religious thing. It's just people who maybe are inflexible or uptight. But when we control others, we're, we're actually seeking to play God for them. We do not allow God the free, we do not allow them in their relationship with God to allow the freedom to work to see real change happen. Let me say this, when it comes to control, when it comes to this kind of rejection, uh, this, can take, uh, this can take different forms. It can take kind of a religious conservative form. It can also take kind of a progressive irreligious form. Uh, for conservative people, for religious people, oftentimes this control is built out of fear that somehow someone else's morality, someone else's worldview is going to get pressed down upon me and I'm going to get led astray. And so I seek to control and so I reject and condemn other people in, order, in an effort to try to control what they do out of protection for my way of life and my way of thinking. Now there's another side though, the progressive side, and that side tends to move in the other direction. So they're fearful that someone's gonna impose their, a morality that they don't possess upon them, that someone's gonna impinge upon their freedoms, that they're not gonna be allowed to do everything they wanna do. And so they seek to control the world by managing things and they condemn other people saying, oh, you're just a bigot or you're a religious zealot who's trying to impose your views on me. This can go in any direction. But that seeking of control creates kind of a judgmental, I'm right, you're wrong, kind of looking down on someone else who disagrees with you. Now, the last source of condemnation, I think, is a little different than the others. This one is really a response, and that's counterattack. See, it's pretty natural when someone comes at you to, to turn and start, like, I need to counterpunch, right? Like, if someone's throwing a punch at me, I need a counterpunch. And so this really is, it's a natural thing to retaliate when someone attacks us so that when someone acts in a condemning way towards us, what we say is, well, I guess I need to retaliate with an equally or more so condemning attitude towards them. And so we get this kind of exchanging of blows that goes back and forth. And of course, I think this gets us nowhere except for a downward spiral into, um, into a constant battle with one another. Now, the danger of this one is that I think oftentimes this happens with the people that are closest to us. So with your family, um, because with your family, you know what sets them off, don't you? 
with your family members, with your siblings, with your parents, with your kids, uh, with your spouses. You know where, where the pressure points are. And so you know strategically how to counteract or counterattack. So when they come at you, you, you tend to come right back at them in really effective ways. The problem is it doesn't really lead us where we want to go in life. It doesn't bring about flourishing and health in terms of our lives or in terms of our families. So what do you do about it? Well, first, you notice this is talking about your brother. Uh, so this is someone that you have a relationship with and you interact with this person. Uh, verse five, it says, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see, or see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, there's an order to the way in which we're supposed to operate. First, we examine our own lives, then we seek to help someone else. But Jesus actually says it's good to help your brother. Like if your brother has something stuck in his eye, it's a good thing to do to try to help him get it out. The problem is when you try to help him before you've taking the own larger, larger item out of your own eye. So when we humble ourselves in self-awareness, when you see your own sin first, then you're likely to be less harsh to someone else, aren't you? Let me ask you this. If you pull a plank out of your own eye, you're probably gonna be pretty sensitive when you start taking something out of someone else's eye, right? Uh, let me say it a different way. Uh, when you know your own need for grace, you're far more likely to give grace to others. This is the way that Jesus is calling us to operate. He's saying, you need to understand that we're all in the same boat, that we all come from the same place. And so um, ultimately, the, 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 if any, uh, Galatians 6 says, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself because you're in the same boat so that you may not be tempted, but bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love your neighbor. And so what we're called to do is when we see someone who's, who's stumbling, who's falling, who's blowing it, that we're, to, we're to try to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, not in a spirit of condemnation or judgment. That's the idea that Jesus is getting at. So uh, the problem, of course, is that not everyone wants to be helped, right? Look at verse six. I think verse six is a is an interesting one. A lot of people, a lot of commentators, as you read, think maybe this verse is just uh, kind of separate and they don't know how it's related. I actually think it is connected, but this is one of the more difficult verses in the Sermon on the Mount to understand. And Jesus talks about not throwing to dogs what is holy or not throwing your pearls before swine. And now in that, um, I think Jesus is actually saying something that is connected to what he's been saying in verses one through five. And he's saying that there's some people that don't want help. Imagine, for example, trying to help a plank eye guy and point out his problem. And so you've got a guy who is self-righteous, who's judgmental, who thinks he has no issues, but he thinks he can help everyone else, and you're going to go and try to show him what's right. How, is, how do you think he's going to respond? Well, he's just going to retaliate. He's going he's to attack you. He's going to chew you up and spit you out. Um, I, this week I was looking, at, or just online, and a friend of mine posted on Facebook a picture of something that happened at his house. And uh, you notice his dog down in the corner? And so he, had, he posted this picture of uh, what he had come home to after work with a little caption that says, does anyone want a dog? Uh, I, know one that's, I know one that's about to become available. So Jesus says that, um, that if we continue to throw things after uh, dogs and pigs that, and try to give holy advice to them, that they will trample the truth underfoot and they will turn and attack you. Uh, this is why, why we don't give dogs what is holy and throw our pearls before swine. They don't have respect for the truth. They don't honor what God has said. And so it's foolish to continue to throw things at them thinking they're gonna respond in the right way. Now, there's a couple of dangers, I think, with this. First, uh, if we're not careful, we might slip into manipulation trying to force goodness down someone who's not going to receive it. 
I mean, you could throw a pearl before a pig, but is that pig ever going to digest a pearl? Is it ever going to nourish a pig? It's not. And so it's, it doesn't know what to do with that bit of information. So if you just keep throwing pearls at pigs, it's not going to have any effect, right? And so part of what Jesus is saying is don't waste your time fighting with people over something, continually throwing something at them that they're not ready to receive. Sometimes what we do when we give someone truth that they don't know how to receive, what, what is our typical approach? I guess I'll just get a megaphone and say it louder and slower, right? And maybe that'll sink in. How often does that work? It just doesn't work very well. And so what Jesus, I think, is saying, don't continue to go back to well. Be there, be available to help, offer something to someone. If they say no, you can't force it on them. You can't manipulate and control them and make them do something they don't want to do. Proverbs 9, 8 says, do not reprove a scoffer, he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. So you can't tell a mocker what to do. He'll fight back against that. Now, the people I think who understand this best in our world are people that are in recovery, either celebrate recovery, alcohol anonymous, um, some recovery program like that. And there's a reality for most people that they know you can't help someone until they want to be helped. And so when I talk to people that are in recovery, they understand they're like, look, you can tell him the truth, but if he doesn't want it, he's not going to work the program. And so you can invite someone into the program, you can invite someone into the steps, you can invite someone into a healthier place, but until they themselves want to get better, you can't, you can't do the work for them. They actually have to do that work for themselves. Now, this doesn't mean that we never offer correction to a wayward soul. It doesn't mean we never offer a counter-argument to a loved one who believes false teaching or believes a false morality. It doesn't mean that we never confront a person who's stuck in their sin. It doesn't mean that we never share the gospel with a hardened unbeliever. But what it does mean is we can't ram it down their throats in a judgmental, angry, domineering way. That we have to present it in a winsome, graceful way. And once we've spoken the truth in love, we can't just grab a megaphone and scream louder. We offer love to them, we offer truth to them, and then we trust that the Lord's gonna go to work. And we recognize that they have freedom and they have to make a decision and they have responsibility to, to do something with that information. It's not ours to manage their response. Now, do you see how that works? So what do we do with this message? Um, let's think about how we're gonna apply this. Now, Jesus is saying that kingdom people should be people of encouragement rather than condemnation, restoration rather than rejection. And so in this, what we've been saying throughout the series is that we've all got these default modes of operating that are sinful that we're stuck in. And so the way we approach life, we just have these default things that we drift into and we find ourselves doing. And somehow we have to step beyond our default modes to become the kinds of people who are genuinely following the way of Jesus. And so that's the invitation we're gonna look at. Now, here's what I realize as I talk to, as I think about some of you, we live with such a natural tendency to do this thing and we've cultivated such a skill at doing this. By the time you're about 16 or 17, if you're a guy living in this world, man, you know how to give it back to someone, don't you? You know how to defend and deflect and when someone comes at you, you're like, let me just deflect that somewhere else and then I'm gonna retaliate and come back at you. And we've learned how to do this. We walk through life with this ability to point out the, the way in which others have done things wrong. And so some of us really question whether we can even navigate human relationships well without constantly pointing out the faults. Like if I don't point out their faults, you're gonna drive me crazy. If I don't tell you what you did wrong, I'm, you're gonna run over me. And so we start to question whether we can even really live this way without pointing out someone else's problems. Now, when we operate that way, the, the problem is we don't really create the world we wanna live in, do we? 
Um, how many of us want to live in a marriage or in a parenting relationship or a relationship with our siblings that's, that's captured by judgmentalism, by harshness, by constant criticism? Um, we don't want to live in a home like that, right? How much of us want to live in a world where um, both sides are constantly attacking based on the preferences and the differences that they see in one another? Um, that's what most of us are frustrated about over, when you think about 2020, 2021, right? Is we, we look at 2020 and we go, oh man, 2020. It's when everything just came unglued in, in our country because one side was just attacking the other because we were operating in a way that wasn't according to the way of Christ and the way that God has given us. And so uh, this is why I think though that Christians have such a unique opportunity in our world right now. Do you realize the, the possibility that we have to be something different, to live as a resurrection community that shows the world grace in a way that they've never experienced, in a way that when they get online, they don't see, in a way that the families that raised them didn't operate in, in the way that they look at their coworkers and at their teammates, and they say, man, I don't see people living like this. I wanna know more about what makes you guys live like that. And as Christians, we say, well, that would be Christ, and we point them to him. And we have a unique opportunity, I think, in this time to be a place of grace where people can learn to walk in the ways of Jesus, where they experience encouragement instead of condemnation. And I think that's what Jesus is calling us to. So I wanna talk for just a second about how we change. See, people need to be free of condemnation if they're gonna change and grow. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the heart of the gospel. It's the, the, the basis of new life in Christ that there is no more guilt or shame or rejection because of Jesus. Uh, this is the, the foundation of what we believe and why we call ourselves Christians. And friends, let me ask you this. Do you know the love of God? Have you personally received the love of God through faith in Jesus? Do you understand that Christ died for you? That he took the guilt, the shame, the condemnation, the rejection, the wrath, the punishment uh, forever that you earned through your sin? He took it upon himself so that you could have forever life with him and new life in him. This is what Christ came to do. And before you can offer grace to someone else, you have to know grace for yourself. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're all in the same boat. All have sinned. So not one of us gets to skip this thing. So all of us have something in our eye that needs to be dealt with. All of us have issues and sins that have to be wrestled with. That's why we can't help one another without, um, that's why we can help one another without judging. It's why we love and welcome all kinds of people to come and explore the grace of Christ. And we invite them to come and to hear about a life that they can have in him that's without condemnation. We're called to be a kingdom, a people, a family, that rejects condemnation. And you wanna see changed lives, create an environment where everyone experiences three things. Gospel, safety, and time. We need grace, we need safety of relationships, and we need time in order for things to work out. That's how change happens. Change doesn't happen because we judge one another and point out one another's faults. Change doesn't happen because we manipulate and control and coerce someone into doing what's right. Change happens through grace and safety and time. I love what Ray Orland says. says, grace plus safety plus time. It's what everyone needs, a lot of grace and gospel, a lot of safety, a lot of time. This is what our churches must be, general environments of gospel, safety, and time. It's where we're finally free to grow. See, friends, our deepest desire as a church is to be a place 
where you can learn to follow Jesus surrounded by friends who encourage you rather than condemn you, who like you and aren't constantly trying to fix you, who encourage rather than condemning and who uh, a spiritual family who gently correct you and guide you back to the God-honoring path whenever you've wandered off. This is what we all long for. This is what our hearts desire for spiritual community and it's what God's created the church to be. And so we wanna help one another experience the safety of grace where we live out what we believe when we say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that that's what the church is created to be? Let me ask you this. When people think about the church outside the walls of the church, is that what they think of? A place where people can come and experience people who believe there's now no condemnation because of Christ. Um, we're called to live that truth out in our relationships. So it's not just what we believe, it's how we live. So let me end with this. Um, who can separate you from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus? I want you just to listen to this passage. If you need to close your eyes so you can just concentrate, I just want this to sink in. Whatever you need to do to allow this just to go to a deep place in the core of who you are, I want this truth to sink in because this is what defines us as a people. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it that can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, let's be a people who believe this completely, who remind one another that there is now no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And if that's true here, then let's let that be true here in our relationships too. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make us a people of grace. Father, would you take the judgmental, harsh, condemning parts of us and would you put it to death? And through that, that seed that's buried, would you birth new life that would bring good fruit in us that loves one another, that cares for one another, encourages one another, that is patient towards one another, that we might be people who display Christ to our world. Father, we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Thanks again for joining us for this redemption sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.